0: Hello fellow High Flyers, this is Philip Hatting and welcome to the Career Letter Podcast. The podcast that inspires ambitious people on their way to success. Each episode I interview movers and shakers from various fields and it is my goal to explore their habits and strategies for success. This episode's guest is Olivia Lin. It is hard to pinpoint in a single word what Olivia does. She has a PhD in Cognitive Psychology and currently is the executive director of HLX Innovations, a consulting company in the areas of psychology, technology, and STEAM learning. Olivia is also a co-founder and was a previous executive director of Studio One Labs, which is a Canadian textile health technology company that developed a new material for many uses, such as a smart bedsheet that monitors the physiological signals of patients laying on it. Olivia grew up in Canada and now lives in Taiwan, where she is one of the leads in the initiative Women Who Code Taipei. She is a self-taught coder and teaches programming and STEAM to kids. What STEAM is and how to use it for your learning progress, she will explain in the podcast. Her activities in the areas of technology led to her being featured by girls in tech Taiwan 40 under 40. She's an expert on the topics of learning, understanding, and merging the forgotten with innovation. What this means for her, we will also discuss in the podcast. One of my personal highlights of the conversation is when Olivia describes her key learnings from the early stages of founding a startup and being a co founder. So if you're passionate about startups or thinking about becoming an entrepreneur yourself, keep listening. Olivia, welcome to the podcast. I was really looking forward to the conversation today as um, there are so many different facets on your career, which I'm um, eager to explore today and uh, already yeah, discovered a bit whilst doing research for for the interview today. And so I have many, many questions prepared today. And I was thinking to start with um, a question on an answer that you gave to me on, on a question I asked in advance to the interview, which was, if uh, you were to give a TED Talk, on what topic would it be? And then you answered that uh, exploring, your, your topic would be exploring your own creativity via STEM learning. My initial reaction was, okay, STEM learning, I went on Google, researched, what is it, um, how can I use this? So now that I have the expert here today, I'm curious, uh, what is STEM learning and how could you use it for your own creativity, as you say, and also for personal learning?
1: Sure. Um, Well, hi, Uh, thank you for having me. Um, STEM really stands for science, technology, engineering, mathematics. And it's now, I guess, more appropriate to call it STEAM. And that's because it's uh, it's to incorporate the arts as well. Um, So I really teach STEAM or STEM to kids ranging from the age of 2 years old to 16 years of age. Um, And I, I like teaching STEAM because I get to design custom projects with kids based on their interests and as well as um, their parents' uh, needs and wants um, for them to learn. And so I I would say STEAM helps my creativity because you're not incorporating just um, computer language, you're thinking about product design, you're thinking about design thinking as well. And so in generally, I go about it um, when teaching is um, encouraging the concept of open-minded learning and learning through play as, so, as methods to learn and teach programming. Because um, sometimes programming can be very, very boring for kids um, and very abstract into its ideas. Um, and so I usually of research and um, about topics come up with projects that is suitable for them and um, the kids usually have a lot of ad- ideas and you're trying to incorporate that um, while you're teaching and I think that drives kind of a lot of the creativity both with the kids and also f- um, in- enhances my creativity for myself as well.
0: Okay and um, now if, if I was never exposed or as listeners might not have been exposed to the concept, um, how could one use it oneself? How, how could one adapt it to, to one's own learning um, right. progress?
1: Um, I think um, it depends on if you really want to uh, learn how to program. And if you do, uh, I usually encourage people think about what they want to accomplish um, through c- coding um, is it a project? Is it? Do you want to develop a prototype? Um, is it because that your friends uh, you you looked at your friends uh, uh, kind of projects you think it's cool you want to copy, and it's because that um, learning uh, coding can be very abstract and is sometimes very difficult. Um, so what I find even for myself is that um, being successful um, in coding or programming. Is that um, you have some some kind of a goal uh, to accomplish, um, but usually I tell people to just Google and search kind of interesting projects that they want to learn. Um, and chances are that someone already thought about your idea or thought about something similar to your idea, and uh, you can and you kind of try to piece things together. That's how I learn. I actually kind of learn things more organically like googling and then um searching uh, kind of how do you do something and trying to piece it all together i find that's a little bit better than learning purely just from books or pr- from courses that are available but definitely there are also books in online sources as well youtube um is um great resource as well
0: okay and um the, the STEM learning or STEAM, as you say, learning concept. How did you st- start with all of it? Could, could you share some insights? How did you come about with, with the whole concept? And um, yeah, now well, you teach uh, it to kids. How, yeah. how did this call all come about for you?
1: I think for me, so I actually come from a cognitive psychology background. So um, so my background is a little bit diverse, but through um, my PhD in cognitive psychology we always have to build psychology experiments and um, I wasn't from a technical background so and fortunately my supervisor had like um, a technician or uh, a computer person in our lab that I often relied on Um, and um, I've decided that I can't keep doing that because I should really learn how to code myself or my own experiments. So um, there was a Python course. Python is a computer language that was offered uh, in my graduate school. And I took that um, to learn a little bit. But um, I would say that I really learned how to code when I was doing the startup. Um, and that was because we were trying to build a product. Um, there were so many things that we had to work on. So it was really by trial and error that I, and by just curiosity to make something work, that I started uh, learning coding myself. And so after leaving the startup, I started teaching what I. Uh, what I've learned and what my experiences were, kind of to little kids, um, so that they can have a try in terms of prototyping and making their own kind of projects.
0: I see. Okay, so um, if I get this correctly, you you taught you self taught. You're a self taught coder. Is this correct then?
1: Yes, mainly. And
0: <laughs> if. Um, if, if people listening um, are interested in, in coding and, and would, um, yeah, could imagine or would like to, to learn coding themselves, what would you recommend then? What would be a good approach to, to start out with coding?
1: Uh, I recommend them uh, trying to figure out which coding uh, pro- programming language that they want to start out with. Um, I would say have also some goal, like whether it's small or big. Um, You can take a look at um, uh, kind of websites that offer projects or there's a lot of STEM curriculum out there as well and then resources so kind of just googling seeing what works for you and then pick a project that you want to do and then kind of just try and then through trial and error I think um, people will start picking up um, the language there's a lot of resources online on youtube as well as online courses such as coursera and edx that's offered and so those are great places to um, start as well
0: and was it was it a good choice um in in hindsight to start with python as the first coding language
1: yeah, I don't think I can start with any other language because um, Python was the most easiest to learn for me, I think. Um, I've tried uh, others um, such as um, C++, C, Java, which was a lot harder for um, uh, for someone that is not technical.
0: I see, okay. Yeah. And um, I also saw on your LinkedIn that now you lead the initiative Women Who Code Taipei yeah. in yeah. Taiwan. <laughs> and um, I, I researched that, is an initi- that it is an initiative um, and an organization that is dedicated to inspiring women to excellent technology careers. And I was wondering what advice you have for women who want to pursue a career in technology.
1: Mm. I think uh, for, I would really encourage women who want to pursue a career in technology to just try And I think, um, especially coming from Asia, um, people are more, I think, conservative. They're more uh, less direct than um, uh, just in general in terms of personality. And I think coming from my experience, I I was also like that, um, and I am still. um, But I didn't come from a technical education. Background and often I learned technology um, through motivation, through curiosity, just trying. Um, so I would encourage the same thing for other women um, because you never know how you would open a new opportunity for yourself. And um, I think that's one of the most important things is that you're kind of trying to open avenues in your life, and then things that maybe are not as planned um, can actually open up new opportunities. And um, I think for women in technology, I would also encourage people to seek mentors. Um, I have a lot of um, mentors in my life, whether they're female or male, uh, whether they're in the technology field or in sports, in martial arts, in other domains in my life. And um, so, for example, when I was first graduating from my graduate school and I was seeking different opportunities, I met a UI um, UX uh, mentor and she kind of opened uh, my eyes uh, towards that field and um, how and she was explaining how UI and UX um, would relate to psychology and how I was um, I was it also opened some opportunities for me there. Um, another mentor I have is in textiles um, and she showed me the kind of the new evolution of where te- textile technology can do go. And that was really important, especially when I was doing my startup, um, and also for my interests in general as well. Um, so, and currently, because I'm I'm one of the leads for um, uh, Women Who Code Taipei, um, so I I help bring community events um, um, to the general public. Um, not just limited to women, but just kind of for the community themselves. And I think it's really important because innovation becomes more valuable when a community comes together to support it and challenge each other. So, yeah. So I think that's my general advice for women in technology in this field.
0: <laughs> many, many thanks. Nice. <laughs> uh, thanks for sharing. It's it's interesting that you bring up mentors um, and I myself, I'm I'm a big fan of the concept of uh, having mentors, and also at some point, I could also not obviously imagine to to mentor people as um, I think it's a yeah wonderful tool to help uh, young people on their on their path. And um, now you mentioned this one mentor, which probably is just an example. The UX concerning the UX UI topic. Um, how how did this come about? How did you find? that mentor as this is a topic many young people struggle with or wonder how they can find a suitable mentor could you explain that a bit more
1: yeah so the mentor that I have in UI UX I think uh I was actually in graduate school I was taking another course and it was through that professor uh, I was talking about my visions about where I can go or where I not to go and I wasn't really sure I was kind of babbling like nonstop about like kind of just um different interests i have and then she was like oh wait i have someone um so i know someone who's a um uh in this position at this ui ux company um do you want to talk to her And i said sure i really didn't know what ui and ux was at the time so i was like yeah i i want to learn more more about other people's positions so i started talking to her and then she naturally organically became my mentor that way and um, she still is I still ask her for help on things and um, another example is a kind of the mentor in textile technology I, I came across a um, talk that she was giving um, in Toronto Canada and I kind of just went and I found her lecture was fascinating she was talking about the future of textiles and then I just kind of went up to her and she I was like can I grab a coffee with you I want to learn a little bit more and she was she was really nice about it and she was like sure and she didn't even know my background she didn't like she, I, I had um, I had no background in textile tech uh, in technology at the time um, and but she she we grabbed the coffee and she kind of naturally also became my mentor, yeah.
0: Amazing. Okay, so what what I can hear from this is, or what I can learn from this is, the first factor you mentioned was showing curiosity, asking many questions, um, sharing your vision, your ideas, and the second one was the uh, just just going to ask and and showing initiative, asking yes. if if we can grab a coffee. Okay, that's amazing. Note it down. <laughs> Um, good tools to find mentor, mentors, <laughs> definitely. Okay, Olivia. Um, you you mentioned uh, the topic of textiles a few times already, and mm. um, I obviously I did some research in advance, and on your website I I found that you wrote that one of your passions, and now this is a quote, is merging the forgotten with innovation. And um, I'm curious, which which forgotten areas you would like to merge with innovation, also in the context of tecti- textiles. Maybe you could just explain a bit on this.
1: Sure. Well, I well, my definition of the forgotten is really that um, that ideas has been lost um, or knowledge that has been lost through the generations. Um, and I think there are many um, areas that are being, uh, are fading away. Um, dialects are one of them, cultural traditions are one of them. Um, but um, in Asia, I'm currently based in Asia, and in Asia I see traditional handicrafts, textiles, and traditional art forms becoming more forgotten. And that's the area that I have more of a passion in to kind of merge with innovation and technology. Um, So I'll give you an example in general, what I saw um, in Taiwan. Um, I went to a flower exhibition and they were doing traditional um, flower decorations here in Taiwan. But then I saw that they were using uh, new materials such as plastic, styrofoam, something that you wouldn't kind of put flowers and materials together. And so I felt that it was a, and they were kind of trying to, um, kind of build on the value of art um, in flower decorations in general to enlighten the younger generations. And I thought this was a great example to just add a little change to the art um, so that a forgotten area can be something that's valued in the uh, coming generations. And so I thought that was a great example, but I also want to take it further to add more like more technology, whether it's like in augmented reality, in VR, I kind of merge that um, with kind of traditional crafts to make it uh, educational, to make it valuable and to kind of just bring in aesthetics to the next level. And so I personally really like flexible forms of handicrafts um for example textiles and i like the color use the pattern making that's um, been done um, from different cultures as well um and i've been interested in that for some time now and so i feel like combining these types of handicrafts uh with new materials can bring new uh, create new forms of art and that's what i'm kind of passionate about
0: and um which yeah forgotten formats in particular or um yeah forgotten products you would like to merge with innovation? what kind of ideas do you have?
1: um I don't have one specifically. I think my interest like kind of falls um like in many different areas and i've there's always like new things that I'm learning every day, so I haven't found one specific yet um but um based back to uh kind of my earlier experiences with a startup before that we were working on smart textiles and so that was one way of going about bringing um kind of merging innovation in textiles together
0: yeah interesting okay uh olivia maybe maybe we could uh, talk a bit then about the the startup that you mentioned a few times already and um yeah as as you mentioned it's um it's connected to the topic of textiles i um I researched that it's a health technology company um, developing, now I'm quoting this, enterprise solutions with um, fabric sensor technology, such as what I found is a smart bed sheet solution that monitors the vital signals of patients in, for example, hospitals, which I found mind-blowing, to be honest. And... Um, as many young people out there dream of becoming an entrepreneur and um, yeah, have maybe ideas in their head of uh, creating their own company, could you share um, some of your experiences from the early days of becoming an entrepreneur? What were your learnings? What were the experiences?
1: Sure. I co-founded the company uh, with a co-founder about five year five years ago, and so I've left that company about a year ago or so. Um, but uh, it was really interesting because it kind of brought um, some of the, my co-founder and my like passions together. Um, we were interested in technology. I was interested in textiles as well. In and we were trying to form a kind of a new material that people can use in healthcare setting. And, um, one of the directions was to really build a, um, a bed sheet, um, that can be detecting, um, physiological signals while someone is sleeping on it. And so that was kind of the, the, one of the directions of where the company is today, but the technology is kind of where the value is, um, Um, but, um, I can tell you a little bit more about, uh, kind of the key learnings as a co-founder. Um, it was really difficult, um, because I've never founded a company myself, um, before that. Um, but there's a few learning that I've learned. Um, the first is really to be adaptive, um, to the situation in your surrounding, um, and, I think often founders will say that you have to be flexible and adaptive um, to the situation because you're missing an opportunity. And missed opportunity can be very costly, especially for a startup. um, Because you don't really get as much opportunities as like a big corporations that maybe have the resources. And and often for startups, your situation is changing every day, day by day. And often your decisions have to be quick. this whole thing is really opposite from my personality because I'm the type of person that really needs to think <laughs> before I make a decision. Um, so uh, I had to kind of, uh, kind of improve kind of in that aspect um, to apply uh, my decisions a little bit quicker. Um, and then the second is really communication and uh, networking. Um, I was really bad at communicating and also presenting and pitching. Um, like, I remember one of my first experiences in a business meeting or a networking, a business networking event. I was kind of just sitting there. I was maybe talking to one person beside me, and that was it. And um, But that's not really good enough, especially if you're trying to um, – run a company yourself because um networking is one of the m- most important things about with startups and um, building connections building relationships with people and throughout that i guess i've learned how to speak to different types of people um i at first i really didn't know what to say um to people uh how do you even start the conversation let alone trying to pitch a company to them so that was very interesting um and i think uh i've learned to the point where um when i came back to asia it was another learning experience because um at the time i was still working for the uh, startup and um, i had to learn how to communicate in uh, chinese which is not my forte um, at that point, I grew up in Canada, so English is my first language really. And then, learning how to speak in um, business terms in Asia was a whole another level. And but it was uh, really interesting. People know that I'm a foreigner, um, so they were more helpful in that way. But I think communication and also being adaptive is kind of the two key uh, learnings that I got from the startup
0: it's interesting that that you say uh pitching ideas and the networking aspect was was a bit challenging um initially could you um maybe explain a bit more how you then yeah uh develop new new skills in that area how you improved because i think everyone is now now th- thinking to themselves oh i also want to improve there how did you do it
1: I actually just went to multiple events um uh, so I kind of uh my co-founder was better at this than I was like googling um kind of net technology related events or kind of events like related to our business at the time and then we just went and um uh, and then I started just slowly talking to people it's really boring like for two hours when you're not talking to people so I started like trying out this and if it doesn't work then oh well um I went to another person and tried tried that and slowly I started building confidence in that way um, um before my co-founder really helped um because um trying to kind of bridge kind of connections and introduce me to people um at first um so that really helped um, but overall I think meeting new people, getting mentors. My mentors really encouraged me to try other things. And I've also had a mentor during, my, uh, during the startup um, who helped me pitch. And I went to, I was, um, and she kind of looked at the presentation and then how I spoke. And then she kind of went very detailed about how I should like um, start presenting about my company. How do, how do I end um, when I'm talking to people, how do I do a 30 seconds pitch? How do I do a longer pitch? How do I do a presentation? And um, she, was really, she was really good um, in terms of mentoring that way. Um, other avenues I've tried is like going through accelerators that were targeted for women. Um, so then you get um, um, kind of actual professional uh, help um, from business leaders um, trying to, Trying to kind of coach you along the way. How do you present um, formally? Um, and I think I was very lucky. Uh, I say lucky, but I um, I won also in Taiwan when I was doing a pitch competition. A very from a very large um, company, uh, which um, that actually boosted my confidence in terms of speaking and um, communicating. So, um, but that's really thanks to like kind of the mentors in my life that actually got me to this stage.
0: So you, uh, you would, uh, recommend people just going out, trying it, getting out of their comfort zone, networking. Right. And trying it. Yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah. All right. Cool. Many thanks. Um, next, next question I have is on the topic of product design. As you touched a bit on the, um, on the product of the startup, you co-founded and, I also found online that product design is a topic um, that you're passionate about. So I was wondering um, if if you work on creating new products and um, yeah, maybe also analyzing problems, challenges, and looking for a solution for them. What's your approach on that?
1: Great. Right. Um, so. Um, I want to comment both on product design and also services as well, because now I'm currently more involved in um, curriculum design and uh, services for kids and parents as well. Um, so my approach for design in general often comes first by observing the world. Um, I think many times um, we're, we're now kind of uh, in a society or, you know, I feel like it's a vortex where we're kind of picked up by the pace of the current society of being quick, being bombarded with information and social media and media expectations. So sometimes we often don't slow down and observe kind of what's around us or how people behave in certain ways. So I think that's one of my first um, approaches to kind of to observe uh, what people are missing, how people are reacting to certain situations. And um, when, When approaching kind of the design of products or services, I think about what my target audience, how does it react to uh, the product? Does this product affect any changes um, in their daily behavior? And if no, then how can I design a product for my target audience without affecting their everyday behavior? And I think that's often the challenge, as you can see, the approach comes from my past training in cognitive psychology, because we were always kind of um, told to uh, emphasis on the person and the behavior. So I think that's my my general approach to kind of observe, uh, look at what's kind of missing, uh, test the hypothesis, and then go from there and get feedback from other people.
0: All right, and um, now now that you mentioned the the cognitive psychology background, um, actually you you have a PhD in cognitive psychology, and I um, I, I wonder if you could speak a bit on the um, topic of cognitive bias, as it is a as it is a topic that um, I myself stumble across frequently <laughs> on the internet or in bu- books and. Um, now that I have an expert here, I wonder if you could uh, explain a bit what influence it actually has, the, the concept of cognitive bias on our everyday life and also work life.
1: Sure. Um, well, I think cognitive psychology itself, um, I was really researching on people's memories or how people remember information. And uh, cognitive bias um, is the tendency to make, like when to make decisions, but in a very illogical way based on kind of your environment. And so for example, um, a cognitive bias might be that you're making a poor decision or a decision to board a plane uh, because you, uh, on that day you read on uh, the headlines of a newspaper that a plane crashed. And that's kind of called uh, the availability. There's a lot of uh, biases, but that in particular example is called the availability heuristic, where you're kind of overestimating the importance in the likelihood of events um, given the greater availability of that information at that time. And, and so that's one of the biases, but there's many, many cognitive bias. I think stereotypes also fits in um, into um, that category. Um, but I think for work situations, um, often we – we, if we recognize the cognitive bias, we're able to prevent it. So for example, stereotypes is um, kind of something that people are more aware of now and I think can be prevented um, more or less. Um, and I think I can give you another example. When you're a product designer and you say that uh, we did lo- lo- lots of simulations on this product or testing and um this most of them showed no problem Um, but perhaps you didn't think about kind of other situations um and this is this is focused on information that only confirms pre-existing beliefs so that's another kind of example of a cognitive bias so not only when you're working on design in kind of interacting with work situations you often run into different types of cognitive bias And I think the most challenging thing is to just recognize that it's there.
0: Um, Apart from just recognizing it, could you think of a positive impact it has on our life, these cognitive biases? Uh,
1: Positive impact. Usually cognitive bias, I think is meant for more, like not not positive, (laughs) but I think it can be turned into positive. And that's where I think like, people have to recognize that there's uh, there's a bias and then you can turn that uh, naturally into um, something that's, that's good. Like stereotypes doesn't have to be negative. You can always turn it into a positive things, um, but you have to recognize that there is one in the first place.
0: Okay, I agree. Definitely, okay. Um, Olivia, uh, next round of questions is, um, I would say uh, more into a, general direction or even also a bit more personal direction um, as I found online um, in your LinkedIn CV actually that you are a kendo practitioner and earlier in the conversation you also mentioned a mentor shortly mentioned a mentor mentor in the area of martial arts so I'm curious um, if you could explain a bit uh, about what kendo is actually as many people probably don't know and um, yeah maybe also what what the sport the the martial art has taught you how it might have helped you um in your professional career just um yeah
1: um so i think i'll start by uh saying that i practiced kendo um for about uh in total about six years um kendo is a is a martial arts that um one can say that came from i think japan um a long time ago in the traditions of the samurai and basically it's a um, martial arts right now that is a physical contact um it's, we we uh, dress up in armor and then um, we have this bamboo uh kind of I think weapon um that we hit each other <laughs> on the head on the wrist um on the stomach and the throat areas as well and um the goal is to really get a point um, off of the person. Um, but throughout, it's uh, martial arts because I feel that it's not really the, just the physical training. It's also the mental training. There's always something that you have to improve. Um, and I practiced for six years, um, but in the middle, I stopped um, like a long time, six years as well. I just came back into the sport um, or the martial arts. Um, I think... It's one of those sports where it's interesting because you can start at any age. So there are people who start at very young and there are people who start like in like 40s or like, and you can, you can um, practice this, the martial arts until you're like 80s, 90s. So it's a, it's a whole life uh, kind of experience once you, once you really get into kendo. Um from the learnings of Kendo, I say I really like it um, because um, because of the mental aspect for me. Um, I often say that I can de stress um, because I often feel my brain is overwhelmed with information um, from the world, uh, whether it's um, um, kind of it's by work, it's through other things. Um, but when I practice, Kendall, I feel that I'm giving my mind a mental break. It's like a meditative practice. And so, but um, at the same time, it's helping my attention. It's helping my focus. um, And in Kendall, uh, you are still focusing on things to improve, like your technical skills, your breathing, your footwork, your form overall. Um, but I kind of forget the outside world for the duration of the practice and I think that's what's meditative um, in terms of how it affects my work or how it affects my daily living I think I start I've um, really learned um, humility and how to be humble um, because in Kendall there's always someone better than you um, that's for one and I find Kendall training never ending Um And it also builds on my curiosity because there's always something to improve. Um, And I find that what's interesting about this um, kind of the sport or the martial arts is that you can really feel the person's personality through through kendo um, play. So when you're kind of um, against someone, then you kind of figure out their style or trying to figure out um, how they play. And that also kind of reflects upon their personality as well. Um, and I think, lastly, I enjoy Kendō because of the community. It's um, uh, in the people uh, who play Kendō. It's like a like in, if you go to different areas of the world um, and meet Kendō practitioners around the world, you kind of have a common language, even though you don't speak there their language. Um, So, um, and people kind of, um, kind of can interact that way. And I think I like meeting different people through the martial arts.
0: You say that, um, can you call it a fight? Is it a fight situation? If you play? so
1: in, so in tournaments, um, how it works is that we have three minute, uh, it's called matches. I I would say three, three minute matches where you're against uh, someone else. Um, and you're trying to score points um, on your body, um, and so what's interesting is not it's like other sports. It's not, for example, soccer. You're kind of your goal is to hit the hit the soccer ball into the net, and you get a point. But in martial arts, um, in kendo, it's very different. They're checking, they're judging you not just on your hits. So you have to hit the person, but you have they score you on like um, they judge you on the correct form, correct posture. Um, kind of we have to voice our um, uh, the kind of the target areas um, that we're hitting. So kind of all of those combined is kind of uh, then tell you whether you get the point or not. So it's not just a simple hit. It's, there's all these aspects kind of involved in order to score a point, which makes it very interesting.
0: Indeed, it sounds very interesting. Would love to try it out. Actually, earlier you mentioned that um, it's it's possible to explore one's personality or the the components person no not components um, the one you you're against in a match um, the the other one's personality. What kind of um, yeah? What would you say? What what of your character traits are going into your style in a match? Can you think of of some? Um,
1: I'm so I can I, mean, uh, I don't know. Uh, I would say uh, because I, I think I'm at the level where I'm starting to uh, like kind of explore my um like my personality or my Kendall, uh personality or my traits or my techniques that I often use. Um, I say this because like when you first start practicing kendo, you're just really learning about the basics. So how to move, how to hit, how to correctly hit. So it's only like when you are kind of a few years in that you're kind of developing kind of your own sets of skills and what, what techniques are works and what hasn't, uh, what isn't working. And also, uh, also physically women are different than men. So when you're against a male practitioner, um, You have to also think strategically um, that, for example, if I push them, I'm not going to win because they're probably bigger, they're probably faster, they're probably stronger than me. So um, I think I'm at the stage where I'm still building my character. So um, I tend to be, I like, but what I like is what I call clean kendo is like you strike and then it's like this perfect hit you don't push people you don't it's like very clean hit you see the opportunity and um you know when to strike
0: all right okay some some good inspiration for <laughs> trying out a new sport um we'll, we'll definitely add it to my bucket list of, of new sports and try <laughs> sounds it out. good
1: you should try it
0: <laughs> yeah for sure okay um olivia next question would be um on books and I'm curious if there are any books that you have read multiple times, and if there are any, why these in particular?
1: Uh, I think, so this is probably not very technical book, or but um, I've only read a series of books multiple times, and that's Harry Potter. And I think I read that many, many times because I feel that it always builds my creativity, my imagination, and it always advances my thinking. So maybe 10 years ago or a few years ago when I'm reading Harry Potter, um, that, that trigger for curiosity or imagination is going to be different from when I read it today. Um, so I can't think of any other books that I, I would say that I read multiple times, except That series, but I can tell you also what I'm currently reading uh, (laughs) as well. Uh, I currently I picked up a book called uh, Manhattan Project. I don't know if you heard um, by Cynthia Kelly, and it's really about the making of um, the atomic bomb. Before, and and, um, it's not because I like things that are destructive, especially after we were uh, talking about Kendall, but. I, it's a way to understand how, on a very large scale, that something was created, invented, and how it influences people's lives. And I think, at that large scale, I think that's pretty impressive. Whether it um, in the consequences of um, how it affects people's lives is something that I'm also interested. In. Um, so that's one book that I'm starting to read. Uh, another book that I also read in the past, um, which I was very interested in is on uh consciousness um and because i came from a cognitive psychology background this one's called other minds the octopus the sea and the deep origins of consciousness it's by peter godfrey smith i'm not quite sure have you heard of that book
0: unfortunately not but um i will note it down and add it in the show notes so listener can listeners can look it up and um yeah have a good read then
1: it's really interesting yeah, because it's about uh, cephalopods and octopuses and um, personality, their way of behaving and how it relates to the human mind. So octopuses are really smart. And I, I came across this book after watching uh, um, some research and also YouTube video about do octopuses uh, have memory Um And um, there are researchers that test octopuses' um, memory. So if you Google octopus memory test, you'll see like different experiments on YouTube. And also, do octopus retain long-term memory? So um, because I was in the memory research, I find that fascinating that um, like sea creatures also um, tend to have uh, kind of traits that humans do as well. And I think... um, other books that I've uh, read uh, is also kind of confidence-boosting um, books, such as How Women Rise by Sally, Hel- I can't pronounce her name, Helges- and Marshall um, Goldsmith. Um, and it, it's they're talking about uh, women in situations Um that kind of differ from men in corporate settings. Um, And I think that was useful for me um, and is still today where um, I'm trying to learn about situations where I tend to react differently or how do I react differently from others and how would that influence my career? And I believe that understanding my own behavior, I'm able to kind of uh, notice and improve um, in that aspect as well. So those are kind of the, books that i tend to read and i'm also other than the technical books um, technical books i read are kind of like python 101 <laughs> data analysis <laughs> type of books
0: <laughs> all valuable recommendations all noted down and i will add them in the show notes and um, it's nice how they add up on the topics that we touched on earlier um the cognitive psychology the the memory topic if uh, one wants to learn more about memory of octopuses and now we have a book and um it's funny that you mentioned harry potter as i'm a big fan myself oh really and how nice yeah <laughs> so um that's uh yeah that, that's interesting to hear that I'm, I'm not the only one who who uh read these multiple times also
1: oh that's great so why do you like harry potter
0: actually you, you you um summed it up perfectly i think um it it helps to boost imagination creativity and um also the factor of storytelling mm, i would say yes. um as it is one of the the most successful stories in the past 20 30 years and um there are probably several techniques that one could use for the next startup pitch or the next um, <laughs> presentation or networking event to tell a good story. So mm. yeah, that's why I like it actually. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> All right, Olivia. Many thanks for um yeah, sharing so so many uh, interesting insights and um yeah, telling telling myself and listeners um about product design, about cognitive psychology, about um yeah, your entrepreneurial career um it was a lot of fun chatting with you i learned a lot and um yeah last last question for today would actually be if uh, listeners now say wow those are amazing topics i would uh, would love to have a chat with olivia myself where where could they reach out to you the best which would be the best platform
1: Sure. Um, you can check out my website, uh, com. um, is one avenue, or you can also add me on LinkedIn, um, to, um, or drop me a message there as well. And I think maybe you can share the LinkedIn, um, uh, my LinkedIn, um, uh, contact as well to the, to the audience. Sure.
0: sure. <laughs> we'll add it in the, in the show notes. Thank so you. many thanks. It was a lot of fun and, um, Yeah. To all the listeners, thank you very much for tuning in. And until next time on the Career Letter Podcast.
1: Thank you for having me. Bye.
0: It was a pleasure. Bye-bye.